0: Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining our podcast. In part one, Sarah Shaw and Tessa Livingston provided us with a great discussion around what Build to Rent, or BTR, as we're calling it, call it here, means, and some of those challenges and opportunities that the various state taxes regimes are presenting to enable the growth of this emerging asset class. My name is Matt Irvin, and I'm a partner within our dual advisory tax group where I specialise in advising institutional capital on their investments into Australian real assets. And increasingly, that includes a lot of conversations around the emerging build-to-rent asset class. I'm joined on the the podcast today by my colleague, Rebecca Lawrence, who's a director in our indirect taxes team, who will now ask to introduce herself.
1: As Matt said, I'm a director in the GST group. I spend about 90% of my time specialising in real estate GST, So I've been looking at issues in the build-to-rent sector for some time now.
0: Now, in terms of how we're going to spend the next few minutes, we're going to explore a couple of overarching themes around how build-to-rent has really gone from a conversation around what people might like to do towards an execution challenge of, well, how do we actually do that? So we're going to talk about where the law currently sits, where we think it might be going, the policy settings that are sitting alongside that, and how these things might work together to support the growth of this emerging asset class. Perhaps to start though, Rebecca, GST is something which we do often hear as being one of the key complexities and blockers to successful build-to-rent investment. So I'm wondering whether you might be able to spend a couple of minutes just sharing with us, well, what are some of those core challenges that GST does present for this asset class?
1: Yeah, so GST recovery for residential property, if you're selling a residential property and it's new, then you get to claim your credits up front and then you have to charge GST on the sale. That might be under the margin scheme or it might be a full rate of GST. When we contrast with the build to rent sector, when you're leasing residential premises, it results in making input tax supplies. That means that there's no entitlement to claim input tax credits. That can mean that during the development phase, the amount of funding that's required for that irrecoverable GST is increased by by 10%. So obviously, that's a bit of a, a barrier for people looking to enter the build to rent market. So when we compare it to commercial residential premises, this is a special type of asset class for GST and you get a special treatment. So where you have long-term accommodation and where that accommodation is predominantly used for long-term accommodation, you have special GST treatment. Um, You can either elect to treat it as the same as bill to rent and so input tax with no GST recovery or there's a special um, concessional rate of taxation which is equivalent to about a 5.5% rate. And we see that being used in the purpose-built student accommodation um, and the manufactured home estate space. And obviously, that's giving um, the best of both worlds, really. You're getting entitlement to claim credits, but you're not having to charge a full rate of GST. So when it comes to build to rent, people are always looking to see, you know, is it, are we possibly going to get into this commercial residential premises treatment? So, Matt, what are the issues from an income tax perspective?
0: A lot of the historical challenges for from an income tax perspective around bill-to-rent investments have centred on the fact that the Managed Investment Trust regime, the MIT regime, hasn't actually been available for investments into bills-to-rent uh, build-to-rent projects. Residential development, income from residential projects like this would have been subject to withholding at the full 30% rate as opposed to the concessional 15% rate of tax, which has been available for other say, institutional classes of real estate. This has been a pretty big deal because most of the capital that's been flowing towards these built to rent projects has come from overseas. And so that effective doubling of the tax rate has tended to make these projects a bit uncompetitive against other markets or other types of Australian real estate. Helpfully though, as we'll come to a bit later on, we have seen some positive movement on that front recently. The second side to this, though, and we won't be exploring this today because it's been covered in other podcasts, has been reforms to our thin capitalization regime, which are currently in the way. This is very relevant to an emerging asset class like this as deductibility of interest is key and the complexity that those rules are going to create around that deductibility is a bit of a blocker and an incremental hurdle to the, uh, to the viability of the asset class. But perhaps Rebecca, coming back to those uh, some of those GSC challenges, what avenues do you see actually out there to try and achieve that GST recoverability?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Matt. and it's it's something that I get asked about a lot. I think people really see that commercial residential premises treatment that I described earlier as being a bit of a sweet spot. and so it's it's aspirational, I suppose, for for a lot of people you're getting to claim the credits back um, but you're only going to have a reduced amount of gst payable on supplies that you make whether that's actually realistic to achieve for a build to rent development is something else so i thought it'd be helpful to just go through and explain a bit about what you need to be treated as commercial residential premises for commercial residential premises there are six specific categories and then there's also an anything similar bucket. So anything similar to those six specific categories. So the main categories are commercial that are relevant for commercial leasing projects are number one, hotel, motel, inn, hostel and boarding house. Number two is accommodation in connection with the school. Three, four and five out of the six actually relate to ships and marinas. So I won't discuss those now. And then six is caravan parks and camping grounds. So there's also a specific exclusion for accommodation in connection with an educational institution that isn't a school. But that exclusion rules out accommodation that's specifically connected with a particular university. But in general, private operators can usually get student accommodation included as commercial residential premises, as long as there are not specific links to um, a particular university. So obviously, if we're talking about build-to-rent, the main category that I've mentioned that we would need to consider whether it's similar to is the first one. So that's the hotel, motel, inn, hostel and boarding house. Now, there are eight factors to consider when determining if something's similar to that category because obviously build-to-rent is not going to be exactly in that category. So we're into looking to see whether it's similar. And the factors come from an original explanatory memorandum that explain the differences between commercial residential premises and residential premises. If you want to find out more detail about those factors, they can be found in the public ruling GSTR 2012-6. But perhaps the most significant one is that residents must have a status as guests. Okay, That seems to be the real kind of key differentiator. And if you think about hotels, motels, in and hostels and boarding houses, Generally speaking, the residents there are going to have a status as guests. When we start to look at build to rent, where there's long-term leasing, and I know a lot of these projects, what they're looking for is to give people certainty over their tenure. People don't want to be bumped out of accommodation every six to 12 months. So a a lot of these projects are looking at kind of three-year leases. Clearly, in those circumstances, the residents are not going to have status as guests and that generally excludes the property from being commercial residential premises. So obviously, there are other types of leasing that do get into commercial residential premises. I mentioned those before. There's the purpose-built student accommodation, and there's a key case on that, which is the ECC Bank case. And that, that found that that type of accommodation is similar to a hostel, even though residents don't have status as guests. And the other category that we're seeing as an increasing emerging um, asset class is the manufactured home estates. And those are treated as commercial residential premises because they're similar to caravan parks, because that's generally what they grew out of. I think it's also interesting to note that that commercial residential premises treatment has been significant historically for income tax purposes as well. So you know, that sweet spot of commercial residential premises is something to aspire to, but for the most traditional type of build to rent, you're probably not going to get there. However, it might be more relevant for things like co-living where the stays might be shorter.
0: I think that security of tenure and security of housing point is a really important one, Rebecca, and something which we'll perhaps come back to in a moment because that does go to the heart of some of the more recent income tax reforms that we've seen. But I guess just talking a bit further to to what you've just explained around the challenges of finding a way into that sweet spot of commercial residential premises, given that does seem to be a bit of a challenge for, say, true built-to-rent, how are your clients actually thinking about those requirements and what what are they doing as a consequence of that? Are they accepting inefficiency within their structures or, or are they doing something else?
1: Yeah, so, so historically, a, a lot of players in the market were trying to argue that because there's um, a lot of amenity in build to rent, that that would be sufficient to make it similar to a hotel or something like that. I think generally people have accepted that that's not going to be the case now. And so people are factoring it in that they will have irrecoverable GST and then no GST on the rents. The space where there's going to be more flexibility, as I said, will be co-living and that's really around the shorter term stays And but that's obviously a different prospect. That's a different business model altogether than the kind of build to rent and where we're looking for certainty of tenure. I think the other things that are coming into play that we're seeing as well is the involvement of, you know, community housing providers and not-for-profits in the space around social housing, affordable housing, and obviously, there's quite a lot of funding coming in from various sources to support that type of development. So, we're seeing our clients thinking about also bringing in those sorts of elements to some of their build to rent developments. So, Matt, I think I've, I've talked quite a bit about the GST and sort of saying, well, you know, it's not great, but. You know, is there any good news on the on the income tax front?
0: Yeah, so historically, Rebecca, probably not. As I was mentioning a few moments ago, we have had this, say, historic distinction between investments in residential housing, which were seen as bad income from an MIT perspective and subject to a 30% withholding tax, which was double the sorts of withholdings that you'd see for other types of institutional uh, real asset investment. Now that differentiation was there for historic reasons, but clearly as a as a response to some of these emerging housing challenges, we have pleasingly seen that drop away. You also mentioned there the trend towards the involvement of community housing providers and other sorts of for-purpose providers in these transactions. That's definitely something which we have seen a lot in this market, particularly where Part of the development includes social or affordable housing components. The need for a CHP, Community Housing Provider, to be part of those investment structures and part of those operating structures can provide some favourable tax outcomes, particularly around income tax, GST and state taxes concessions. But it also does create a significant amount of complexity to the structure as well be that operational in terms of another counterpart that needs to be engaged with and needs to be involved in the project, but also in terms of the way that the private sector capital can actually participate in the project. Where we have charities involved, they obviously need to be undertaking a charitable purpose and are actually prohibited from making a distribution of profits to their members. And what that might mean is that institutional investors are no longer to invest in a traditional equity ownership manner which means that they need to move down debt-like returns whether that's structured debt, mezzanine debt and the like. Again adding cost and complexity to the execution of these transactions. And then finally as I touched on briefly before the think capitalization reforms this is a bit of more recent I'd say bad news particularly for an emerging asset class like this which is possibly still on an education sort of pathway with uh, with your typical banks and other financial institutions. Given that lack of familiarity, there's a probability that those banks will look for greater levels of security and potentially broader security from equity investors and the like in order to gain comfort over the financing of, uh, of that new project. Now, that's all fine and that's all very commercially appropriate. However, what that can lead to, particularly under these new in capitalisation measures is that that third-party security, whether that's in equity, LCs or some other form, could actually add some, some real complexity and challenge to fully deducting that debt.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, Matt? And as you were saying, for example, for, for GST, if you are going to be involved in providing social housing, the GST-free treatment is only available if you've got a community housing provider involved it's only going to be available if there's a, you know, a not-for-profit who's making the supplies. So, if you're in that space, you don't really have a choice but to add some layer of complexity to what's going on there. Um, if you're going to have a, an equitable treatment. So, so what are we seeing governments and regulators doing in response to all of this?
0: Yeah, so it's it's quite pleasing, Rebecca, in the sense that. Governments are taking action in this space and have definitely recognised that Build to Rent has a role in the market in terms of helping to not solve, but assist in resolving some of these access to housing and security housing security of housing type challenges that, that we are seeing as a really pressing issue across Australian society today. And that's covering both tax reforms, which we'll come back to in a moment, but also Funding measures as well, ventures like the Housing Australia Future Fund. But what that's really aimed at is boosting supply quickly through government financing of accessible and affordable housing stock. That's something which there's an expectation and a hope across the market and across the industry that that is going to unlock significant funding and capacity. If we then turn to income tax, I've spoken a little bit about the MIT regime and how. It's been pretty limiting for us in the past. Pleasingly, the government in its its last budget did announce the expansion of the MIT regime to cover build-to-rent projects alongside providing access to some accelerated capital works. This change is obviously really welcomed by the market because it does align that build-to-rent outcome with other forms of institutional real estate. But perhaps coming back to some of those key themes that Rebecca noted a few moments ago around improving the quality and security of housing supply for Australians. It is going to be interesting to see what the qualifying criteria for that BTR MIT are. So at a minimum, what we're expecting to see here are that leases need to be offered to tenants for a period of at least three years that the landowner itself needs to hold the property for a period of at least 10 years as well. And finally, there's likely to be some minimum concentration of affordable housing that needs to sit in an an eligible BTR investment. Now, at this stage, we don't know what that threshold is going to be set at. But certainly as consultation on those measures progresses during 2024, that's something which the industry is going to be uh, keenly participating in. So that's, that's all very good news, though. But perhaps to close us out, Rebecca, the one area where we really haven't seen too much reform or prospect for reform is around the GST. Where do we think we're going from that perspective and what more do you think could or should be done?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right that there's less likely to be movement on the GST, and I think that is probably because of the way that the GST is managed, and there would need to be agreement at a federal level to change the law, and then you'd have to have all the state and territory treasurers agree to that as well for the redistribution of the GST, But at the moment, areas that I'm hearing people talking about where I know that there's lobbying, one is around this requirement where you have the social housing at less than 75% of market value. At the moment, you only get GST concessions where it's a not-for-profit or a community housing provider being the one who provides the accommodation. Particularly if we're going to have minimum affordable or social housing elements for the new MIT rules, is there going to be any flexing of how those rules work or are you always going to have to get a CHP involved to provide that accommodation? The other area is around the claiming of credits in relation to build to rent developments So I am uh, a member of one of the industry committees and when I was uh, attending the last one, I understand that there are discussions going on and there is lobbying going on looking to see if there's some element of input tax credits that can be claimed during the development phase of build to rent projects. Whether that's likely to succeed or not, only time will tell. As I say, I think the real barrier for GST changes is really the way that the GST operates and the level of agreement for change that you have to, to get is, is is kind of next level. So I, I wouldn't say kind of watch this space, certainly not not, not holding your breath. So, so that's where we're at, I think, Matt. Very good. Well, I think
0: that does bring us to a close for our session today, Rebecca, and thank you all for listening. I think from our perspective, this is definitely an exciting space and something we're expecting to be spending a lot more time talking to clients about in 2024, because there is a huge amount of energy and appetite around the sector. And I think probably for the first time in a while, some really meaningful reforms that are aimed at enabling that, even if GST isn't quite there yet. So thanks very much and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page at KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates.